A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of marrying, officiating the wedding of Ellen Stroud and Isaac Summers, and as I told the congregation that Saturday, that was my 30th wedding that I have had the pleasure of officiating. And that started me thinking this week of all of the different weddings that I have officiated or attended through the years. And I realized that they all have one thing in common. Not necessarily the liturgy or the style. Uh, I have done a wedding on a beach in Oceanside, California. I did a wedding in a creek up in Wimberley. Uh, I've done a wedding here in, in our church and in other uh, churches. Not even the size of the wedding. Uh, I remember that Matthew and Raquel Fisher got married the first week of COVID. Uh, shut down. We had about 10 people right here uh, when we did their wedding. Uh, I've also done weddings where hundreds of people have been there. Uh, the glitz and the glamour are all different too, right? Uh, Sarah and I once attended a wedding reception for one of her dear childhood friends that was held in this gorgeous art museum on the shores of Lake Michigan in downtown Milwaukee. The one thing that all of these weddings have in common is joy. Joy. The joy of the groom seeing his bride. The tears welling up in his eyes. I really want to watch the bride come down the aisle, and that's wonderful. But you've got to watch the guys sometimes, too. They're a mess. The joy of the bride at the reception, dancing in the middle of all of her friends. The joy of parents, family and friends who have gathered together in order to support the new couple. But however joyful the weddings that we've attended might be, I think they all pale in comparison to the weddings of Jesus' day. Historians tell us that wedding celebrations in first century Israel could last up to seven days. That's why in John chapter 2, they run out of wine. It's not just because they were heavy drinkers, it's because that lasted seven days. Feasts and dancing, time with family and friends. People that would come would have no responsibilities except to sit and enjoy it. Can you imagine attending a, well, a wedding celebration like that and seeing someone in the corner without food, without drink, looking decidedly gloomy? And you go over and you ask, what's wrong? And he says, oh, I'm fasting. What? That's terrible. That's totally inappropriate. Why would you fast when you should be feasting? And that's the point that Jesus is making here in Mark chapter 2 in yet another conflict with the Pharisees. This morning, let's figure out what Jesus means first. What does he mean when he says that he's the bridegroom? What does he mean when he talks about new patches and new wine? And then second, what does it matter to you and me? These are all parables of a sort, and so they have a meaning, they have an application. Let's figure out what it is. So first, what does Jesus mean? Second, what does it matter? How shall we then live 
in light of what Jesus is saying. So first, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. That's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's the only time that he uses that phrase about himself here in Mark chapter 2. You can also see this same story repeated in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, and in Luke, Luke chapter 5. So in the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus uses this phrase in this conflict with the Pharisees. But what's interesting is this phrase is also used about Jesus in John chapter 3. John the Baptist uses it to describe Jesus. John says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. And then he points to Jesus and he says, he must increase and I must decrease because he is the bridegroom. He has the bride. So I think that there's more going on to this word picture than the simple analogy Jesus is using to explain why his disciples aren't fasting. Let's play a little bit of uh, Bible trivia here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn back in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now turn forward to Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. A very famous passage, many of you know it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Again, turn forward to Hosea chapter 2, that little minor prophet, Hosea chapter 2, starting at verse 19. This is God speaking to Israel through Hosea. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now we know this passage here in Mark 2, in Matthew 9, in Luke 5. We know that John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the bridegroom in John 3. Let's keep going in the New Testament and turn forward to Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And finally, turn to 
the last book of the Bible to Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Why does Jesus call himself the bridegroom? It isn't just because he wants to give a a simple reason to get the Pharisees off of his back so that the disciples don't have to fast. No, he's telling us something. He's telling us who he is. He is making a claim to divinity. Just as God in the Old Testament described himself as a husband of Israel, so also Jesus in the New Testament is using that same identification himself. And by claiming the identity and the prerogatives of God himself, Jesus is overturning everyone's expectations about what a relationship with God is like. For the Pharisees, they believed that their standing before God was based on their ability to obey the law and also to fulfill that hedge of protection, those extra laws that they had built up around God's law. You see, this is interesting because the day that fasting in the Old Testament is only prescribed for one day. There's only one fast in one over the course of the year that ancient Jews were supposed to undertake, and that was a fast on the Day of Atonement. And yet in Luke 18, we read that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Their reasoning was that, well, if God wants one day of fasting, then certainly fasting twice a week is even better. That will get us closer to God. That will ensure that our minds are turned heavenward. Now, we also read in verse 18 that John's disciples were fasting. And we know that John was a bit of an ascetic that really practiced extreme self-denial. And there is certainly a kind of school of thought during this time period in Israel's history that says the way to show your devotion to God is to suffer until it hurts, to worship until it hurts, to sacrifice and to show God that you're really serious about your relationship with him. And Jesus comes and he blows it all up. He says, no, that's not it at all, actually. The way that you must be rightly related to God is by being rightly related to me. You actually have to find your connection to God through me because I am God. This is what Jesus is doing as he continues on to use the other two word pictures in this text. In verse 21. He says, you can't put a new patch on an old cloth, otherwise it'll rip away. In verse 22, he says, you can't put new wine into old wineskins, and if you do, the wine will burst the skins, the wine is destroyed. This is probably one of the saddest verses I've ever read in Scripture. (laughs) 
New wine is for fresh wine skins. What's the point? Jesus is saying, I'm the new patch. Jesus is saying, I'm the new wine. I don't fit in the structures that used to govern your relationship with God. I am not an aftermarket addition that can be retrofitted into your previously held expectations of God. He is out to completely overturn and rearrange all of our preconceived ideas. He is even out to undo the forms by which Israel used to approach their God. It's no longer going to be through the law. It's no longer going to be through the Sabbath. It's no longer going to be through the temple. It's only going to be through him. Friends, when you pair all of these images together, Jesus is the bridegroom, and his kingdom is like a wedding feast. Jesus is the new patch. Jesus is the new wine. You begin to get a sense of what he's trying to get after here. Something new has happened. A new day has dawned in him. And all the ways that Israel thought that they could be right with God or have a relationship with God have now been overturned. For you and I, I think it's a very similar lesson. You can't make room for Jesus in your already full life. Jesus isn't going to fit into your agenda. Jesus doesn't play nicely with the other gods that we have carefully arranged in our life. So it's time to forsake business as usual and join the party. Jesus is the bridegroom. The kingdom of God is like a party. What difference does this make for you and I? Let me ask you this. When people in your life think of Christianity, do they think of the dour Pharisees or the joyful Jesus? Is their vision of Christianity one of obligation or celebration? I think sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking that God especially appreciates that God especially wants devotion that hurts. But Jesus wants us to understand that his presence is a cause for celebration. Now, let's make this super practical, okay? You can take this and not just say, okay, well, Eric says that the presence of Jesus is a cause for celebration. I must be happy. No, take this home. Here's, Here's a way that you can make a difference this week with this message. How do you use Sundays? Well, I'm here, aren't I? I mean, that's one thing that I do, Eric. Okay, let me ask you this. You go home, grab a bite to eat. Is the rest of the day an opportunity to catch up on chores? Uh, Kids, is it an opportunity to catch up on homework that you didn't get done during the week? Moms and dads, do you get a head start on the office because you know when you... Log on on Monday morning, you're just going to get a flood of emails, and so you want to knock some things out so it's not as terrible on Monday. 
One of the really interesting things in church history is that the early Protestant reformers rejected most of the church calendar. But they wanted to keep Sundays as what they called a true holy day, a holiday. They didn't think that we needed many special holidays or special seasons because they believed that every week brought with it a chance to celebrate. Every week brought with it a chance to rest in the victory of Jesus over sin and death. Even in the most penitential traditions in the church, they have recognized that fasting on Sundays is inappropriate. Why? Because that's the day that we celebrate Jesus' victory. So friends, why not rescue it in your own homes? Rescue it in your own homes. Recapture it as a weekly holiday. A true, holy day of rest and celebration. A time for you to actually relax. When was the last time you did that? A time for you to celebrate with family and friends. Don't save the china for Christmas Eve. Get it out this afternoon. Break out the champagne. Have no obligations on yourself except to rest in God's gifts to you. To enjoy what he has done for you. The victory that Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Here's one of my fears for Christians and particularly for Redeemer. As we watch kind of the culture outside of the church walls slide farther and farther into evil and perversity, my fear is that we're going to be satisfied with being angry. We're going to be satisfied with protesting. We're going to be satisfied with shaking our fingers and huddling with our families. But we have to do more than just resist it. We actually have to show that there's something better. It's not enough to protest. We must also build up. It's not enough to be angry. We must also celebrate to show what is true and good and beautiful about the world to come. Second thing, go to verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Most scholars here believe that Jesus is speaking there about his death. The verb that's used there about the bridegroom being taken away, that, that's not just the bridegroom going on his honeymoon. That's a violent removal. Where does that leave you and me? I mean, Jesus is not here. Uh, maybe because he's not with us, maybe we should all be in a constant state of fasting and mourning. No. Remember, we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 that the Spirit of Christ indwells us. But there will still be seasons in your life. There will be times 
in your life, even in the life of this congregation, when fasting and mourning is appropriate. But hear me, they should be few and far between. Our faith is not one of privation. Our faith is one of joy and celebration. Jesus has come so that our joy might be made full. So friends, reject a spirit that is overly critical. Reject a spirit that tries to find fault with the freedom and with the joy of other people. Turn away from the practices and the pieties that create false guilt and shame. Oh, Derek, I don't have to create false guilt. I mean, I, I'm, I feel guilty because of because I know who I am. I, I know what I've done. How, how can I celebrate when I know my own sin? Each Sunday, we have an opportunity to deal with guilt. And the reply after our confession of sin isn't, now you better not do that again. The reply isn't, now try harder next time. The reply is rejoice. Rejoice. What are you doing in your life to cultivate that kind of joy in Christ? Are you white-knuckling your way through the Christian life, veering from one thou shalt not to another? Friends, if you are, you will fall long and hard. Your affections need to be shifted. Your affections need to be moved by the news of Christ's victory. That's what will turn you more quickly to repentance when you sin. And that's what will enable you to more joyfully obey Christ on the other side. Here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus claims to be God. He is the bridegroom of God's people, the bride. He gave his own life to present you pure and spotless to himself. And folks, I can't think of a better reason to turn up the music. I can't think of a better excuse to get to the dance floor, to laugh and to love, to eat and to drink, and to rejoice in the one who calls us his own. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for making our faith more difficult than it needs to be. We know that there will be seasons of suffering and sacrifice. We know that sometimes following Jesus will cause us to have to deny ourselves and to turn away from the shiny things that the world, the flesh, and the devil offer us. But Father, help us to see that turning back toward you is not turning toward something that is lacking, but it's the fullness of joy. Father, may we live and move in that joy and share it with others. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.